Hey, late nighters. I hope that everyone who is hearing my voice is well and is surviving the inflationary times that we're in. Gas prices fortunately have gone down, but everything else has gone up. And if you're like some families have been living on the store brand (laughs) and seeing those store brands also creep up, it's been a little bit disconcerting. But, um, We'll get through it. We always do. We're survivors. We are up late at night because we are um, adjusting our mental capacity to do so. So, good evening to you, sir, madam. And uh, once again, I hope I find you well. Uh, Thank you for tuning in tonight to Late Night with White. I'm your host, C.D. White. And today... Excuse me. I want to talk about fathers. Fathers. Um, I think in our culture, we have sort of villainized dads. We went from treating them like lions, you know, uh, the Cleavers, my three sons, um, these archetypes of the American dad as successful and protecting and a provider to his um, maybe justifiable demise (laughs) as people just began to deal with the reality of men and women and that very often we fail under these, you know, um, traditional roles. They're hard to, um, to really fulfill. I mean, it's hard to be a perfect mom. There's no such thing. It's hard to be a perfect dad. There's no such thing. Um, and our kids are, are very forgiving and very tolerant. And I think are more aware than past generations of what it takes to make it. They see both parents going out there and hustling. They see both parents coming home tired and still going to practice and, you know, picking up um, daughters and sons from Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. So as the traditional roles, I guess, of male and female headships have changed, so has our attitude um, towards those roles where some people are saying, I don't want to be a mom. I don't want to be a dad. These are not roles that I would choose for myself. And, um, you know, at least in our culture, one can, although probably not um, without some criticism, say no to those roles. It depends on how we're saying no. If we're begetting children and then saying no, that's highly problematic. If we are telling our partners in advance, no, we don't want children and you know, living our life accordingly, that's a that's a different way of going about it. So today, I just want to talk about bad dads of literature. Bad dads of literature. But um, before I, you know, I launch into this, I want to make it clear that, um, as I've said before, these roles are difficult to exist in and perfect. And I think as loving and as wishful and as as endeared to our kids as we like to be, um, it's hard to find perfection. But then in literature, we have some really gross, malignant cases of parenting gone bad. 
you know, we have our good fathers and Atticus Finch and Polonius and um, some may argue Abraham. I don't think that he was a very great dad. He made my list of bad dads. But um, what's interesting to, to me is that at, at my age, you know, middle age, you know, I meet a lot of middle aged men who had the traditional uh, setup as young boys. They had a mother and a father, a father you know, um, was a breadwinner. And, you know, maybe mom worked too, but they had two parents who were co-parenting. And it's amazing to me when you, you know, you get to know them and you deep dive, how many of them aren't good fathers themselves. And almost unapologetically, like, yeah, me and the mom didn't get along. I'm estranged from this 30-year-old kid. And, um, you know, I have two grandsons that I don't see. Or I see my grandchildren, but me and my son or daughter or whatever the case may be are not so close because this broken relationship between the mother and and him, supposedly. Um, but sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes I've, you know, I've met men who've admitted I was not there. I was not ready. I didn't do the job of being a father. And I'm perplexed as to just in a moral kind of ethical sense um, not in a religious sense, but in just an ethical sense, um, and what it means to be a moral person to the person we bring into the world, how many um, are so glib about their lack of presence in their children's lives. And the fact that these kids have lingering animosities and difficulties with them, some to the point of not wanting anything to do with the man and him saying, oh, I understand it. I get it. Do you, though? Because you had two parents. You had a dad who co-parented or was present. And you you have not been that. And while you say you understand your kids lingering, let's just call it animosity, or um, deadness to them, does it really make sense that you get it? I don't know many women who are estranged from their kids who say, oh, yeah, we, you know, she doesn't really, you know, want me in her life and, um, or he doesn't really want me in my, you know, his life. And I, I get that. It's a totally different dichotomy. And I don't want to parse that because I don't have a degree in family um, science or psychology or psychiatry, but I'm just anecdotally speaking of what I have gleaned. And I have four brothers. Um, some of whom have been great hands-on dads and some of whom have been hands-on at sometimes, hands-on at others, and some who, no fault of their own, admittedly, could not have a relationship with that child because of um, lingering brokenness between, brokenness between the mother and him. So, um, and of course, as a, as a, um, as an aunt, you don't have a say. If that woman doesn't want that kid in your life or you have access, especially if she denies the father access, what are you to do? You know, um, so there are situations all over that demand um, that are difficult. They're difficult for dads who want to be involved but can't. I recently um, had a friend who was going through a very bitter, entrenched divorce who wanted custody of his kids but there was no way 
in the current state of America and the current state of gender roles that that was going to happen. He would have to prove her a monstrously bad mother for that to happen, and she wasn't. As much as he would have liked for her to be, she wasn't. She was very decent. She was doing a very good job, in my view, um, as a single mom. So all that to say, I don't excoriate men who, um, or women who aren't the best parents. There's really no such thing as a perfect parent. But we do have this history of good dads and what a good dad is and people's memoirs. And, um, you know, you think about the Williams sisters, how, you know, quote unquote, King Richard, uh, you know, put this life upon them, giving them a way out of poverty and of uh, mediocrity in, in a certain extent, seeing in them a great potential. Whether he did it in the right way or in the right context, that's debatable. But as a dad, he's still in their lives. He's still uh, a force to be reckoned with. He's still someone um, um, to whom they show a lot of love and respect. So and then we have dads like, you know, Frank McCourt's dad, who was just broken by alcoholism. And it's hard to be sympathetic, but this is a father who is suffering with the demons of um, trying to not be an alcoholic and parent and a husband, a family. It, there's literally no good way for him to do that. So... um and men are human. I think we need to realize that men are human. So some of the research that I've just, you know, in casual passing um, have come across indicates that when relationships end with the children and the mother, it's very devastating for the men. Whether they have a cavalier attitude about it at first or whether they uh, evidence any shame or brokenness about it. The percentages and the numbers and the facts are that they suffer and they suffer lifelong. Their health is bad because there's no family member, woman encouraging them to be healthier. Their social skills diminish. They find themselves isolated and alone. And, you know, you can Google this. Um, and this is not only true of men who have been married and divorced, but single men heterosexual single men are finding it very hard out there because the nuances of the world and our gender communication and our intimate communications have changed. And I don't think a lot of men, because of misogyny, because of patriarchy, because of the way we still raise boys in this really absent of women way, is toxic to them. It's toxic to them because women generally, and I'm speaking very broadly, they will have some friends, they will have uh, relatives, they will have a quasi-support network. It could be very tiny, it could be very large, depending on their family. Even post-divorce, that men don't have access to. And so, um, I think we have to be very, just cognizant of the ways in which men suffer, right? And we have men who take advantage of that, they're divorced, they're married, you know. Three months later, but even these um, quick jumps into other relationships are to stave off loneliness, to uh, heal themselves from the shame of divorce or not being able to co-parent. Um, if there was abuse, if there were, you know, all these things that 
impact a man's ability to be a good father. So, um, and I, you know, I was surprised to find out that men tend to hold on to relationships longer than women. And I think there's a, there's a gender bias there because, um, relationships typically aren't as good for women. And so it's easier for us to be like, I'm done. I'm done. Whereas the male doesn't really get to understand um, the woman's burden or the woman's particular uh, malaise until she's saying, I'm done. And by the time she's saying, I'm done, it's too late to heal anything. It's really too late for him to change. You know, all of these dynamics are are at play. But um, I think we just need to give men full autonomy to be humans first, the same way we need to give women autonomy to be human first, to articulate their needs, um, and to maybe reshape and reform and rethink fatherhood in the modern era. But let's go see what literature has to say. Okay, so my fan is going. I know that's an annoyance to some people, but it's hot in my little uh, booth, quote unquote. <laughs> so I have my fan going because I'd rather be comfortable. Um, so uh, the sound engineers or engineer would take care of that at some point, or maybe not. <clears throat> but I wanted to preface this part of the podcast with a poem by Robert Hayden. He is, this poem just resonates with me. And I have to admit that I'm a girl who, uh, my father died when I was very young. Okay, so I didn't grow up with um, a father in my life. I had um, a stepfather, um, but that's a different relationship. It's a different dynamic. Uh, my real father was out of the picture permanently, was never going to come back. And maybe that challenged the way I um, dealt with my step-parent um, to some degree. I would need to get on somebody's couch and parse that out. But I love this poem by Robert Hayden, Those Winter Sundays, because it just encapsulates to me parenting, not just for a dad who's doing his best, but just the concept of parents doing their best in difficult circumstances. Once again, excuse me, as soon as I start talking, my voice goes crick. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, make banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the coal splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Mm. I just think about that dad who, despite what the author intimates of some anger and some other issues, is still doing the duty of making the house warm before waking his kids. Such a beautiful image that just resonates with me right because I can see my mom doing the same thing in her way I can see a lot of my aunts and um you know 
my my uncles doing the same thing. You know, I had an uncle who my whole life I've maybe said three words to, but he was so venerated. When he came home, everything went still. We were quiet. We shut our mouths. We went out the house and we were inside. He was fed and nurtured and taken care of by my aunt. And I just, you know, I just still at my age um, can see him getting out of the truck and the joy that we felt. He wasn't even my dad. He wasn't even an uncle I was close to or saw a lot. But we were just like, perhaps it was a a species of pride because he was a working African-American man coming home to his family. I don't know. Like I said, I'd have to be on the couch, right? Maybe for some years to really parse that. But we're going to start with our worst dads, not all those great dads who um, are provided to us by literature and real life. The first on my list, and these are always not in any particular order, but I think I did come to this one first um, because of the heinous nature of his crimes against um, this child that he was um, supposed to take care of. And that is from the color purple Alfonso, Celie's stepdad. Thank God we find out. This is her stepdad, because when her mother got ill or became ill with some, you know, I think he just was crippled from the life of just being beaten down. He began to use Celie for his sexual pleasures and to take those children that he got with her and hide them away. And of course, we know that becomes the impetus of the novel when Mr. and his redemptive act is able to bring those children back to Celie because she never forgot them. And despite the fact that the man she thought of as her father was their father, she loved them and she longed for them. Um, Celie parenting against all hope. And Alfonso, the rapist, um, giving these kids away to foster homes. I don't know if Walker would say in a redemptive act or just um, perhaps more of his greed because he's a financially greedy man, basically selling Celie off and would have sold her sister off too had he been given the opportunity. So just as a parent, whether he's stepdad or not, uh, um, one of the most egregious of <laughs> in literature um, that I've encountered um, because of the way that he broke that family down for his own selfish needs, a complete and total narcissist to the end. At the end of the novel, um, when he finally dies, he's married to a 15-year-old. So there was something about him that liked young girls who could be controlled, manipulated, who didn't have a lot of autonomy, voice, you know, all these things. It's a feminist train wreck, right? But um, we are glad to know at the novel's end, these kids do exist. They've been adopted. They had lovely lives, unlike Celie herself and Nettie to a certain degree. They had lovely lives um, in loving, caring, um, co-parenting homes. So um, his cruelty in giving them away actually led to a better life. And then, as I said, Celie gets to um, reunite with them in her older age. And so I also want to move on. And I'm, I know someone out there is going to email me and say, why did you start with Black Dads? <clears throat> because I think that African-American literature has a lot to bear on good parenting. Because 
no other people live with the stress of systemic brutality and hatred the way we do, and yet are commissioned to raise loving, unbroken children. And that's not always possible in our society, right? And so uh, I mean, these are um, characters that I've read about and um, strike near to me when it comes to, wow, bad father. These were the men that came um, first in my mind. So just to head off those emails. Um, so my second bad dad is Mr. Breedlove from The Blue Aside. And I don't think anybody who's read The Blue Aside would um, parse with me about his malignancy as a father. Now, although we can talk about um, the ways in which um, his violence under white supremacy, um, that he endured his sexual um, stagnation and humiliation, his um, constant derailment of any sense of obtained manhood, um, not being able to provide, protect, to love, anybody that was real, we could argue that. And yet what he does to Pecola, his daughter, um, removes a lot of his redemption because it's so selfish. It's so selfish to rape his own daughter and to take from her um, not only her dignity, but any sense of security, any sense of being fit to be loved. And we know from real accounts of familiar rape, um, if we look at um, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and, you know, other texts like that, um, these are things that are lifelong, that require lifelong healing. Um, and I'm not sure if the healing really occurs, right? Um, there's a measure of self-development and awareness and forgiveness, um, especially talking about Maya Angelou, um, that are in place, but the rape still has occurred. The robbery still has occurred. And like Picola, you know, Angelou was eight. Nicola's a young girl, roughly the same of age. These prepubescent, barely feminine um, entities who are reduced to um, just an abstract nothingness by the male presence in their lives. Luckily, or maybe unfortunately, in Angela's case, the, her rapist is brought to justice. Um, in Picola's case, except for Mr. Breedlove's continuing you know, self-imposed suffering, there really is no justice for her. Her wanting the bluest eyes to fully escape the shame of her blackness. So, um, and I think that Mr. Breedlove is also that archetype of African-American male in literature who um, is a reduced kind of baby man. He is the man, he is the male soul without any outlet. He is the male soul without any redemption. And I'm speaking for both cultures, for both both black and white cultures, because what Mr. Breedlove has become is a direct result of his encounters with um, a hateful, brutal white society. So, um, and then we have a lot of talk with Faulkner who deals with... Um, white male rage and it's coming from uh, 
degrees of lack of power and uh, feelings of like of lack of whiteness and lack of masculinity masculinity that can be easily changed or shifted and you know who better to act out against than um, an African American who has no voice, no law, no justice by which to counter my actions. So it's a heap of historical blah, right? But these historical missteps, these very real actions have very real consequences. And as I was researching this, I was thinking about George Floyd's daughter, who I'm sure, I, I hope not, watched uh, his video or a portion thereof, or knows how her father died, and how are we going to mitigate as a world this violence that's been done to her father, and then by proxy done to her, still, in the 21st century. So these things haven't gone away. We're still reckoning with them. My other bad dad is Humbert from Lolita. Bad in almost every way, manipulative, narcissistic, um, insisting that this young girl of 12 has seduced him, a full-grown, middle-aged, gross man. Because he can't really explain in decent terms his desire for her and eventual possession of her after her mom died, except to say that he was seduced. And, um, there's been some talk about this being a romantic novel that is really not um, <clears throat> as lewd as imagined, but I've read it. And Nabokov can give defense, authors often do, but I don't think until later society was able to really reckon with this character of Humbert and his actions, atrocious actions against. Lolita, simply because he wanted her, because she suited his fancy, because we live in a world in which the male ego and the male desire and lust is given preeminence, even at the um, detriment to others. We look at this in an abortion debate um, where men aren't being held accountable. There's no nationwide ban being spoken of to, you know, give men vasectomies until they're 21 and free reversals. And there's no um, charge of better sex ed for men, of, you know, um, condom use for men, you know, training men to use condoms to recognize when a woman's on her cycle. Nothing like that. It's still the punishment of the patriarchy um, of the woman who dares to have sex and then gets pregnant. So, yeah, Humbert's a creep. He's a creepy stepdad. Um, and this is probably going to strike people as weird. But I also put on my list Rochester from Jane Eyre. Okay, because uh, he kind of fits the archetype of the guy who sired a child and is saddled with it because the mom is like, mm, not me, not now, but doesn't admit to the paternity. Who goes on to have children in wedlock with Jane but doesn't the, the novel never addresses this young boy's position, right? Um, as quasi-adopted stepchild, but really, wink, wink, nod, nod, the, the child of Rochester, right? Who imprisons um, his wife 
for about 10 years um, because she has so-called gone mad, but also because, wink, wink, not, not, she's of color. She's Creole in a white society. And if he wants to be in that society and have all the rights and privileges thereof, he has to somehow annul this relationship with the black woman, the um, of color woman. And so I don't like Rochester. There's nothing really redeemable about him. Go read the novel. Come back to me. Reread it with different eyes if you have read it. <clears throat> but he's, and then she has, and then he's blind and missing and hand and, I don't know why Air has, uh, why Bronte has to, almost in Walker style, demand him to make him acceptable to Jane or uh, um, an appropriate spouse. But he's almost like unworthy and of no real good to her. Um, and of course, Bronte's been dead a while now, but I would like to have a conversation with her about is this really the best you could do for Jane to give her some old creepy, blind, broken man who is just, I'm going to leave it alone. I'm going to leave it alone. So yes, Rochester did make my list. All right, and hurrying now because I'm, I'm eating into your nighttime and I don't want to. I also put on my list um, John Winchester. From Supernatural. Now, you know, I know, I know. Supernatural is not a novel or a work of literature, but he he stands for this archetype of um, the Ahab father who's so set on revenge for the death of his wife, justifiably, that he blindly leads his two sons, Dingan and Sam, into a world of monster hunting that nullifies any chance of having a normal life and real intimacy outside of their brother relationship, right? Dean is incapable of a mature relationship. Sam is, but his, his fidelity to his family and to Dean always neuter that somehow. So, um, and Sam is the one who speaks this, of this angst towards his father, of this resentment towards his father for this life that they've led. And um, Dean is one who's like, oh, how can you blame dad? And dad was wonderful. He did the best he could. So you have these two sons sparsing um, and and sparring over um, their dad's memory. And the dad comes in and out of the series before he's finally sent to, I think, hell or maybe heaven. And um, we see his love for his boys but we also see his determination to get the the, the monsters and um, particularly one who killed Mary and his um, continuing dalliance with the devil to such an extent that he could never really be a parent and see Sam and Dean as children. There are means to an end. There are monster hunters that he can sick on monsters. Hopefully they'll come across the one that he wants most. So yeah, I added Winchester to my list. Next, probably also shocking, and my last entry is Abraham. Abraham is, you know, from the biblical text, the father of many nations. He was obedient to God, leaving his, you know, original land and striking on his own. He went from Abram to Abraham as God uh, saw favor in him and changed him. 
But his actions towards his two children, Ishmael and Isaac, are kind of like man. Okay, so this father of nations and peoples more numerable than the sands on the sea is highly problematic. At his wife's behest, he gets his handmaiden pregnant or her handmaiden pregnant, has a son, the promised son. Also at his wife's request, he banishes Ishmael and his mother to a very, what would have been a very indecent death had not God intervened, God himself intervening, telling her, you know, have hope. You know, here's some bread and here's some water. You're going to survive. And then, of course, the lasting enmity between Isaac and Ishmael over inheritance and over birthright. I don't know. The Bible doesn't couch Abraham's pregnant, uh, getting um, the young lady pregnant. And I forget her, her name just escapes me right now um, as lust. But if he had the faith that God would deliver his promises, why didn't he just tell his wife to, you know, step off, to be patient and to wait on God? How could he, as a decent father, send the woman and the child out to die? And there are so many deaths that could, the scorpions thing, of course, by the time she sits down and laments, she is thirsty. Right? <clears throat> is this sufficient punishment for her, you know, <clears throat> pride of place in having given him a son at their request? There are a lot of things wrong with this picture, with this scenario. And I would love to, and I have read what biblical scholars think of it, but there's really no excusing it. And then, of course, we go on to the, um, you know, the sacrifice of Isaac at God's request. Was this fair play for the potential sacrifice of Ishmael? Um, one doesn't know, but I'm... not finding much to recommend Abraham here when we look at his actions um, as a father, um, as one of the good guys. And then as I thought about some other biblical characters, eh, there aren't a lot of good fathers. And then we get to the New Testament with Joseph, who at the direction of angels takes on um Jesus' mom and becomes a step-parent and we don't have any complaints in the text about what kind of dad he was but he did the good thing by not having her be put aside and marrying her and you know Jesus had other brothers and sisters and you know the family uh, lineage can be traced but I don't in my mind, I mean, and David was problematic, and Solomon was problematic, and Saul was problematic. These weren't good fathers. They were so complicated and so broken and so male with a, with a capital M that um, there's not many that could be said to be good fathers. So that's it.
my bad dads of literature. And of course, I hear you. I already hear. I already see the rolling of eyes. There are some bad moms out there too. And so we will have to have a reckoning with the mothers out there um, in many texts who were not good role models for motherhood. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your emails asking where I've been. I just had to take, you know, we have some family things and had to take some time for myself and um, I had to back burner some things. And as much as I love the podcast, I just didn't have the um, time and the wherewithal and presence of mind to do a good job. So I wanted to, like I always tell you guys, it's a labor of love and stuff. I can't come and do it, you know, to the best of my ability. It's okay to just take a, take a moment but we're back and i want to thank you for hanging in there and thank you for your continued content and your support those uh increments of five dollars comes in handy it helps me buy a new mic all kinds of things um and go to angry mule at wordpress and check out the blog that somewhat accompanies um the podcast although i think they're thematically linked not always um show by show linked so it's a little more broad than the podcast is. But hey, thank you for listening and have a good night.